Dear Father, we are thankful for the finished work of your Son on the cross. We are thankful that he has given us a new life in which we can live. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit by whose power we are empowered to good works. We thank you that you have prepared them ahead of time for us that we might walk in them. We pray that we be faithful to do so. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are switching gears a little bit. We are in the first epistle of John this morning, and we will be for the next six months. This isn't going to be a full changing of gears, though. Hopefully this is going to be building on the foundation that we built in Genesis 1 through 11. None of this is disconnected. It's all connected. The New Testament is built on the firm foundation of the Old Testament. None of it disappears. It is all God's word by which we can learn how to live in this world while we await his soon return. Now, I don't have a slide for you that tells you what the theme of this morning's sermon is or what the goal is that we're going to reach, but my goal is that I introduce you to John and to his epistles, the situation that he was living in in about 90 AD in the city of Ephesus. My goal is that we see the importance of this for our lives today, so that as we go through the epistles of John in the next six months, we all can learn and grow from it, recognizing that John's day, though dis, uh, disjointed from us by about 2,000 years, is not all that different from the day and age that we live in today. So we're going to do a quick fast forward from Genesis 11, about 2000 BC, to about 100 AD. And I also want to show you how what we've studied so far does all go hand in hand. Now I'll admit that I didn't have this plan when I started Jude, but it was while I was teaching through Jude that I made the plan of what I wanted to teach through the next year and what I felt the Lord was leading me to teach through the next year. In preaching through Jude, I was impressed with the importance of understanding the Old Testament in order to understand our situation today. Most of what we see in Jude depends completely on a knowledge of the Old Testament. Almost every reference that he makes anticipates an understanding of Old Testament doctrine. And he's pulling that doctrine into his very short epistle. And in so doing, he spans nearly the entire doctrine of the Old Testament and the Gospels. This is important for us to be able to do as well because there is not much of the New Testament. It pulls from the Old Testament. We're supposed to learn those lessons. We're supposed to learn and relearn those lessons. The New Testament isn't something totally brand new. It is the conclusion, the finishing of what was promised in the Old. So then we went to Genesis. We built a foundation, Genesis 1 through 11 where we saw God's plan for creation, that he put a man on the throne of this earth. Then we saw the fall, where man has need of someone else to save him. He cannot save himself, and man has promised another savior. We saw the flood event, where God blends salvation and judgment. They go hand in hand. In order for salvation to occur, there needs to be judgment. There needs to be something to be saved from. Man is saved from death. 
by God. And this shows God's justice and his mercy and that he can hold those both in the same hand. Then we saw the dispersion from Babel, how God protected mankind, protected the nations, and protected the line that would lead to the Savior, that would lead to the King, and also in order to preserve his word for Israel and for us so that we could learn by it. Also this summer, we've been going through all four Gospels. Seems like a hefty task, but we're almost done. So I would encourage you, come on Tuesdays. We're getting to some of the most important material in the Gospels. Two weeks from now, we'll be looking at the crucifixion of Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross. But in this study, we've seen the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, that he would send a savior and that that savior would crush the head of the serpent. We see the, the fulfillment of that seed promise given to Eve and Adam, passed down to Seth and to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Judah, and then to David, and finally given to Mary, and she gives birth to a baby boy who becomes the savior of the world. We saw how the Messiah was rejected by first century Israel, but that he promised to come again. This promises the fulfillment of God's creation purpose, to place a human king over this earth in order that he might rule through him and that he might be glorified in doing so. We're about to see his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, solving the problem of the fall. He gives revelation of his second coming, promising that all of God's words that have been spoken will be fulfilled. Nothing will fail. And so now we move on to John's epistles. We've come full circle and we are ready to launch into New Testament doctrine to learn how we are to live in this day and age, how we are to live in expectation of the Lord's coming and what wonderful riches of grace have been given to us in our salvation. So as we approach the epistles of John, we want to understand what kind of books they are. We want to understand the history of them so that when we look at them, we know how to contextualize them. We need to first understand John in his day and age so that we can apply him to our day and age. We don't want to make a direct application because we might miss what was actually going on. John's books are an interesting genre. People struggle whether to label them letters or epistles or even a sermon. They lack a greeting. He doesn't introduce himself. They lack a farewell. In fact, it ends very abruptly. Children, keep yourselves from idols. He doesn't mention his recipients. He doesn't say this is to any specific church. It's probably meant to circulate. And the structure of this book is more like a sermon. Whereas 2nd and 3rd John are letters. They do have an introduction. They do have an address. They do have a farewell. But this makes 1st John almost impossible to outline. 
You remember when we went through Genesis 1 through 11, we had a pretty detailed outline. This won't be quite the same, but I've still done my best by the grace of the Lord to outline this epistle, even though pretty much everyone you might read who has tried to do so says it's impossible because it's not a linear book. It's circular. It's a spiral. He builds on doctrine. And he goes through again with another layer and he builds on that doctrine. Then he goes again and he builds on that doctrine. Here's the outline that we will follow. Hopefully this mirrors pretty well each spiral that John goes through. First, we're going to focus on these topics that he lays as a foundation. Life, light, and love. All characteristics that he assigns to God. We want to first understand who God is so that we can understand who we are. Then we're going to look at the anointing that he has given us, the abiding spirit within us and the actions that we can take because the spirit has anointed us. And then our responsibilities in the fellowship to maintain the faith, to maintain fellowship and to maintain our eyes on the future promise of glory with the Lord. And then in the two letters after 1 John, we will look at fellowship in practice. After John sent this letter circulatory through these churches, he sent two more letters to either praise or further commend those who read 1 John to walk in the same doctrine as was given in 1 John. You'll remember that when we went through the different languages, we saw that language and thought go intimately together. John demonstrates a mix of Semitic and Oriental thought here. He is branching out into Gentile lands, but he is still thinking like a Jew. We are going to see this in his book, whereas someone like Paul thinks linearly. He thinks like a lawyer. It's point one. Point two, point three, therefore point four. John isn't quite the same way. John does much what we do when we study the Bible. This is called the hermeneutical spiral. As we interpret, as we understand God's word, we don't learn one new thing and a second new thing and a third new thing. We relearn the things we've already learned and they become deeper, they become more understandable and they become more applicable to us the more we learn about these topics. There's not always something brand new to learn in scripture, in every single scripture, but there is a deeper understanding that we can have of it. And this is all thanks to the Holy Spirit. So we want to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit as we go through this book by John so that each time he takes another lap around the spiral, we can be right there with him growing deeper in our faith as he tells us more about the Lord, who is life, light, and love. And so John's book, as opposed to the Pauline epistles, is not so logical, but it does maintain a perfect logic. He doesn't try to win you over with logical arguments. He speaks with authority, and he speaks with art. We could compare Paul and John to Hamilton and Mozart. One was a lawyer, the other was a musician. 
John writes like a musician who has crafted a perfect symphony. And in his introduction, much like a symphony's overture, he's going to give us little bits of what is going to be developed as he goes through his book. So we want to pay excellent attention to his first words, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Well, let's start with some facts about John, about this book, about his day and age. As the books would indicate, this was written by the Apostle John. He doesn't identify himself in the books, but external evidence claims that these books were written and circulated by John. Our first witness is a man named Papias. He was a close friend of John. He lived with him in Ephesus. He worked with him and he ministered in the church of Ephesus. Papias had a disciple named Irenaeus who recorded much of what Papias had to tell Irenaeus about John. John or Papias was adamant that whatever doctrine he follow and teach to his disciples be the doctrine, not that he heard someone say about the apostles, but directly the doctrine that the apostles handed down. Irenaeus records Papias as having said, if I met with anyone who had been a follower of the elders anywhere, meaning the apostles, I made it a point to inquire what were the declarations of the elders. What was said by Andrew, Peter, or Philip? What by Thomas, James, John, Matthew, or any other of the disciples of the Lord? He wanted to know directly what they had to say, not someone's interpretation of it. What was said by Aristion and the presbyter John, who is the Apostle John, disciples of the Lord? For I do not think that I derived so much benefit from books as from the living voice of those that are still surviving. John was the only one still surviving in Papias' day, and he learned much more directly from the mouth of John than he could learn by any interpretation of what the disciples had written down. John is going to tell us that we have fellowship with the Lord through the words that the apostles have handed down to us. We have fellowship with the apostles when we read their words. And when we read them, we understand them, we believe them, we apply them, we have fellowship with God through those words. Polycarp was another contemporary of John. In fact, Polycarp ministered with John in Ephesus, and Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna. He recognized Smyrna from the second letter in Revelation to the churches. Polycarp lived until 155 AD, which means he only lived about 55 years after John. Much of their lives overlapped. Irenaeus was a disciple of Papias and Polycarp, and he wrote down much of what Papias and Polycarp had to say, specifically in a book he entitled Against Heresies. This was a primary contention in the first and second century. They were combating heresies right and left. And that we'll see is the social context of 1 John as well. Clement of Alexandria, living only about 100 years after John, also had much to say about John 
as each one of these ascribed this book, or all three of these books, plus the Gospel of John and Revelation to the Apostle John. In fact, there is not one church father who is not a Gnostic who attributes these books to anyone but John. In fact, if anyone does attribute these books to anyone, they only attribute them to John. This is weighty evidence on its own, it's not quite enough because this is not biblical evidence, but this should lead us to at least accept the possibility that this might be written by the actual John. Surprisingly, this is an idea that is not well accepted today in liberal theology. We want to be absolutely certain that John is the one who wrote these books. So what does he say of himself? What does John want us to know about his authority when we open up the first words of his book? He writes to us what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, there was a theory that this was probably written by Thomas because he says that he touched the Lord and only Thomas is recorded as having touched the wounds of the Lord. This is a sad excuse of trying to make this anyone but John. John, doubtless, also touched the Lord. We know that he leaned on his chest at the Last Supper. We know that John was the disciple whom the Lord loved. John also heard, saw, gazed at, and even touched the Lord. This was an intimate fellowship that, for John's audience, would be amazing. Many of them would be young children or young adults who were born after the time of Christ. They never had the opportunity to actually touch the Lord in his incarnate body. But John did, and this did give him authority. John claims that apostolic authority that would have been ludicrous for anyone else to claim. In fact, if this book were not written by John, we ought to laugh it off because only John has the ability to make the claims that he does in this book. 1 John 4, 6, he writes, we are from God, speaking of the apostles. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, when a non-apostle would say something like this, he would be deemed a heretic because he had not been given the authority to say something like this. The apostles had been given the instruction from the Lord to hand down the words of God. Others had not. So when another's words are denied by the apostles, say, those words are to be denied. But if the apostles handed down doctrine, that was to be received, to be accepted. This is much like the Lord's own words. In John 8, 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Jesus said this to the Pharisees who refused to listen to Jesus' own words. John wrote both of these passages. John knew the weight of his words when he wrote them down in his epistle. He knew that he was claiming to have the same authority to share doctrine as Jesus Christ himself shared. 
For any man who was not an apostle to say these words would be unscriptural. In John 14, 25, we read these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Jesus tells his disciples that all the doctrine that he had taught them through his three years ministering with them, he had taught them while he was physically present with them in his human body. But he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. This is not a promise to all believers. This was specifically to the apostles for their task of recording the New Testament. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I said to you. John is not writing his own message when he writes these epistles. He is recording for us the message that Jesus Christ had given to him. John will tell us he's not writing us any new commandment. He is writing to us about the commandment that was already given to us anew by the Lord just two nights or just one night before his death. In fact, almost all of 1 John can be found in the Upper Room Discourse. The night before Christ died, he gave his message on church doctrine to John, to James, to Peter, and to whichever other of the apostles were there with him. So that would be all but Judas, the disciple, who was not a believer. On a similar note, it would be presumptuous of John not to sign this work if his audience would not know exactly who he was. John's notoriety we see in other books. Revelation 1.4, the only book that he wrote that he actually signed, he simply writes, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. We might say, which John? I honestly doubt that any recipient of the book of Revelation ever asked which John. There were probably many name, men named Johannan, but there was only one John. John was able to write without telling us which John because he was the John that would be first to anyone's mind. John and John alone had earned the right to call himself simply John. Now this, in the book of Revelation, he writes that his name is John because he's writing to seven different churches. Not all of these churches were where he personally ministered and served. But when he writes to Ephesus, when he writes to the people that he knows, he has no need to sign his name. They know exactly who he is. They know exactly his authority. They know that he has the authority to tell them what the words of God are. And they have every reason to listen to him. He doesn't need to sign his name. He doesn't need to identify his authority because he is not writing his words. He's writing the Lord's words. And so it would only distract. They already know they can trust this message. So who was John? 
He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. This was only said of John. This was not said of any of the other disciples. John was probably in the closest fellowship with Jesus. We see that he has multiple layers of fellowship. He has the three that are with him at almost every turn in the Gospels. James, Peter, and John. James and John are brothers. And then he has the 12 disciples that travel with him and are sent out by him. He has the 70 that he commissions and sends out. And then he has the multitudes, the 300, that would follow him around and learn from him. Each of these were in a different layer of fellowship. The same thing goes for us. We have our close friends, our closer friends, our closest friends. We serve the Lord together in different circles of fellowship. For us here in this local body, we are a circle of fellowship. Within this body, we have friends that are closer than others, but we all serve and minister together. The same went for Jesus Christ. John was born in Bethsaida in Galilee, and he was born to a wealthy family. He was probably born between 6 and 11 AD, making him anywhere from 12 to 15 years, 10 to 15 years younger than Jesus. He was a very young man. He may have been 16 when Jesus first saw him fishing with his father and told him to follow him. And John dropped everything and followed him. Before he was 16, he was already a follower of John the Baptist. He had already decided that whomever John the Baptist would indicate as the Savior, he would follow him because he recognized John as a prophet. John was a very young man when he came to know the Lord. John was very young when he came to serve the Lord. John was the son of a woman named Salome, or Shulamite in the Hebrew, and she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This makes John and Jesus first cousins. He was the son of Zebedee, who was the husband of Salome, and his brother was James, who was also a disciple of the Lord. James and John formed two of the three that were in the inner circle of Christ's fellowship, with him at every turn. But when the rest of the disciples fled from the Mount of Olives, only John came back. Peter came back, but stood at a distance. John, whose family was well-off and well-known, well-known by the high priests, was able to make his way into the secret chambers of the high priests. He was able to watch the trial of Jesus. He was able to watch while they unjustly sentenced him to death. And he was the only disciple who was present at the crucifixion, the only one to watch Jesus make the sacrifice that brought salvation to the world. And because he was there, he was entrusted with the care of his aunt Mary. And he stayed with her in Jerusalem until they were told to leave by the Lord just before 70 AD when the city was destroyed. 
John was the apostle of love. We get that title for him from the epistles that he wrote. When he was with Jesus, he was called at one time a son of thunder, together with his brother James, because when the Samaritans didn't want to let them pass through Samaria, John and James said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on them? Just burn them all up. Jesus chides them for this, calls them sons of thunder, but look how much the gospel changed John. We'll see that although he still maintains that black and white attitude in his epistle, he's not writing a polemical letter against heresies. He is writing a pastoral letter to his flock, the people he cares for and the people he loves. John was one of the three most important men in the birth of the church. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church right from the beginning. In Acts 4 and 5, we see him and Peter imprisoned and tried, flogged and released, and then again later imprisoned and tried and flogged and released. These men were faithful to the Lord's commission to build his church, to preach the word, to be in prayer. Peter, or not Peter, Paul, tells us about them in Galatians 2.9. He says he recognized the grace that had been given to him. James and Cephas, who is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. James, Peter, and John were the ones who extended fellowship first to Paul and Barnabas, who then went out and gave the word to the Gentiles. James and Peter continued to minister to Gentiles, or to Jews, all the way through their ministries until they were martyred. John, however, after 70 AD, shifts his ministry to Ephesus, a city of Gentiles. He is the only one among the twelve who served both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And at this point in his epistle in 90 AD, we see absolutely no distinction between the two. This is put in the category of a general epistle, sometimes called the Jewish epistles. But the problem with labeling it that is there is no indication that his audience were Jewish. There's no specific indication that his audience were Gentiles. They were probably a mix. He fled Jerusalem with Mary in 70 AD or just before. They would have gone to Pella in Decapolis first and then made their way north and west to Ephesus. They lived in Ephesus from AD 70 to about AD 100 when John died. He was a pastor and an elder in Ephesus after Timothy, who was commissioned by, Pete, or by Paul. He was only absent for a very brief time in those 30 years, for a two or three year stint on the island of Patmos when Domitian sentenced him to exile. But Domitian died before John did, and the emperor Trajan allowed 
John to return to Ephesus, where he continued to minister for the rest of his life. John was also the author of the last gospel, the Gospel of John, which he wrote in Ephesus. And he was also the author of the book of Revelation, the greatest prophetic book in all of Scripture, because it combines all that we know from the Old Testament prophecies. And other than Jesus' prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives, this is the greatest prophetic discourse. So when was this written? This does become important because things change a lot in a hundred years. These epistles were written sometime between 90 and 95 AD, probably before Jesus went to the island of Patmos or just as he went to Patmos, which might explain why he needed to write letters rather than be there presently with them. The gospel that he wrote dates from about 85 to 90 AD, and Revelation was written sometime in either 95 or 96 AD. So in this period of about 11 years, he wrote all five of these books that we now have in our New Testament canon. To simplify these dates, I just like to think of them in my mind as 85, 90, and 95, knowing that they could extend to the next five years. So keep that in your mind, 90 AD. And where we know that he wrote this to Ephesus. In fact, we know more about the Ephesian church than any other church in the New Testament. We might not realize just how much we know because only the book of Ephesians bears their name. Because Paul wrote to many different churches. They were designated not by the letters of Paul, but the letters to the Ephesians or the Philippians or the Colossians or the Corinthians, etc., The book to the Ephesians was written in about A.D. 60, while Paul was in prison, either in Caesarea or in Rome. We're not quite sure which one, but we know he was imprisoned while he wrote it. He also wrote the book of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus in about 55 A.D., five years earlier. On Paul's way from Caesarea to Rome, where he would there be imprisoned, he had a secret meeting with the elders of Ephesus in a little coastal town called Miletus, where he warned them of the coming heresies that would enter into the church. Timothy was probably among those elders that he called. The two letters to Timothy, these were written to Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. These were written in 65 and 66 AD. The letters from John, somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. And the letters from Jesus, contained in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. The first one was written to Ephesus, but these were meant to circulate to all seven churches and probably beyond. So the book of Ephesians, or the book of Revelation, rather, was written to the Ephesians. It would be their first recipient. Ephesus was an incredibly important church. 
in the New Testament in first century AD, probably because this was the seat of the last apostle. This was the seat of the last man who had the authority to declare the word of God. When John died, that ended. And what we have written from the apostles is what God chose to record for us to live by today. So this brings us now to the importance for us for 1 John. We want to understand something about the issues that were going on so that we can apply this to the issues that are going on today. So some of the issues at large in the first century AD, once again, a lot changes in a hundred years. By AD 30, the incarnation of Jesus had already taken place. He had already made the offer of the kingdom to first century Israel and they had rejected him. They had rejected the king of God's choosing, which meant that he would withdraw the offer of the kingdom and re-offer the kingdom to a later generation of Israel. The death and resurrection of Christ had already taken place. The atonement had already been made. Redemption was already offered. And the birth of the church had already occurred in the spring of AD 30. We have recorded here in Acts 2.22 what the primary issue here in AD 30 was. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Jesus came and revealed himself to first century Israel, and they rejected and killed him. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. A.D. 30 began a period of persecution that the church has never fully come out of. In fact, the church, whenever it is persecuted from outside or pressured from inside, only grows. And this was occurring between A.D. 30 and A.D. 60. The church grew immensely. The apostles, up until about A.D. 60, A.D. 67, were able to exercise apostolic oversight. They had been commissioned by the Lord. They had seen him in his resurrection. They had been given the responsibility to give doctrine and to correct doctrine. By A.D. 60, many of them were already dead, martyred, killed, just as Jesus had been. In fact, all but John probably did not even survive to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. By the time we get to the epistles of John, John has been the only apostle for quite a while. His notoriety was widespread through all of the world. Just before the last apostles departed from this earth, they were warning intensely 
about the heresies that would come in once that apostolic oversight was no longer present. Paul, when he calls the elders from Ephesus, brings them to a little port town in Miletus for a secret meeting. In Acts 20, 28, he warns them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. They were responsible for guiding their flock, not for teaching them new things. That was not Timothy's prerogative. That was not Titus' prerogative. For John, this could be. But Paul continues, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The apostles anticipated this kind of corruption entering into the church once the apostles were gone. Second Peter 2. Peter from the diaspora writing to the Jews who are not in the diaspora in about 65 AD. He writes that false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of Israel in the Old Testament and in the early first century, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, in our life of Messiah studies, probably one of the points that we've hit home the hardest was the false teaching of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had taken the law of Moses and had corrupted it so that it could no longer be understood. They had done to the law of Moses, which was supposed to point them to Jesus, what these false teachers would do in the New Testament, corrupting the words of the apostles that was supposed to point them back to Jesus. Peter says, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We saw what sort of destruction the Pharisees would face. Jesus, in many parables, told them how they would be judged. Peter is applying this to false teachers in the church age as well, those who seek to lead away from the man, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we might live. So what are some concerns then by AD 90? What has changed in those 30 years? The church continued to spread in Gentile lands. And as it spread in Gentile lands, it encountered Gentile philosophies, Gentile religions that it would need to combat. Religions that would try to syncretize or harmonize, to change the gospel that was once for all handed down to the saints. It would try to make it more palatable for its people so that they could blend it and adapt it to the religions they already held, to the philosophies that were growing in Greece and Rome.
Oops, this should say the church is endemic. The church is no longer made up of only converts. Converts from one world system to another. For the first time now in AD 90, much of the church would be made up of those who perhaps grew up in the church. This was a situation that only occurred in the first hundred years of the gospel. No longer were they all those who had come to hear for the first time the gospel of salvation and believed in their adult or even elderly lives. There were second generation Christians whose parents brought them up in the word of God and who placed their faith in the Savior Jesus Christ and perhaps even grandchildren who were taught the words of the apostles and who believed in Jesus Christ and never believed in anything else. They never had to flex those muscles of faith to withstand the world around. This in and of itself is not bad. This is a good thing. But they should be aware that the world around them is going to try to seduce them with false philosophies. So the sway of false teachers begins to take hold in foreign lands and in Jerusalem, especially in the younger minds, when the apostolic oversight was no longer present, when you no longer had the apostles. Not being very old myself, I've found myself in recent years contemplating just how young my own parents were when they had me. How not that long ago were the 70s and 60s and 50s, which seemed like eons ago when I was young. Now they're beginning for the first time to feel almost like I could have been there myself. Imagine for these young minds in the first century, separated from Jesus by 60 years. They're looking back to their grandparents' generation and thinking that was forever ago. Those apostles, they died 20 years ago. Thankfully, they have John still in their midst. Jude was another one who lived past 70 AD. He wrote his epistle in about 80 AD, still 10 or 15 years before John's book, before even the Gospel of John was written and circulated. And he wrote that the heresies, the wolves, that Paul had warned about were already here. Just in those 20 or 15 years since Paul had warned, 15 years since Peter had warned, he writes, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. It didn't take them much time at all. They were there waiting to enter as soon as the shepherds were gone. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The heresies were here. The apostles had the responsibility of oversight, and there's just one left. So what does he do? Eusebius tells us that although John is now in his 80s, 
perhaps even in his 90s. The moment he gets back from Patmos, what does he do? He does not retire. The beloved disciple of Jesus, John the Apostle and Evangelist, still surviving, governed the churches in Asia after his return from the exile on the island Patmos and the death of Domitian. John served in ministry to the very end of his life because that's why he was still alive. That's why he was still here. That's why he was spared. God still had more to reveal to the church until the book of Revelation when he closed the canon. And so John, waiting for his own death, didn't lay down and let the next generation go to pot. He served the Lord to the very end, exercising authority over the church as he had been told to do under the apostolic authority of the word of God. Jude 3 tells us the same remedy for false doctrine. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Not something new, not something exciting, something old and true, something perfect and pure. I really want to do this. We're running out of time. We'll go fast. We have seven churches in the book of Revelation. And Jesus himself gives John the words, and we hear how Jesus related these words to John. And he has a message for these seven churches in the year 95 AD. What is that message? Each and every church, the message is combating heresy. There is no deviation from that pattern. In Ephesus, they are commended that they do not tolerate evil men, those men who call themselves apostles, but they're not apostles. They say they have apostolic authority, but they do not. John is going to write about these men because he is writing to the same church in the same situation. He is going to write about the men who came out of the apostles, but were never part of them, never had that apostolic authority. They are preaching a different gospel, and that gospel is not to be listened to. It is to be shunned and rejected. In fact, in 2 John, he tells the people not to even let those people in their houses. If they are preaching a different gospel, they do not get to come in your home. Coming into your home would be extending the hand of fellowship. Fellowship is for believers. Fellowship is not friendship. Fellowship is living together in the body of Christ. Yes, we are to be friends with unbelievers, of course. This is how we share the word of God. This is how we share the gospel, and that should be our purpose. But fellowship is intimate. And fellowship is for those who stand on the same word of doctrine. Fellowship is for those who stand on the integrity of the word of God, passed down once for all to the saints. 
These men here are called the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, or he praises them, because they also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, who were oppressing the people, leading them either into legalism or licentiousness. In Smyrna, they are oppressed. There are Jews who call themselves Jews, but they are not. Just like the Nicolaitans were calling themselves apostles, but they were not. These Jews were not Jews because they were not the Israel of God. They were not believers. They did not receive the Messiah. They were from the synagogue of Satan. These are false teachers. The church of Pergamum. They have some in their fold who teach the teachings of Balaam. Balaam who led Israel astray who corrupted Israel from within because Balak was not able to destroy them from without. So he sent the Moabite women into Israel to destroy them from the inside out. This was happening in Pergamum. Once again, we see the Nicolaitans at the center of this problem. In Thyatira, we had a woman named Jezebel who appears to be in some sort of leadership role, or perhaps married to one in a leadership role, who was teaching and leading the bondservants away. She's called a prophetess. She was a false teacher. Jesus says those who are holding to this teaching are those who know the deep things of Satan. This is important for Gnosticism, which would grow out of these heresies. The need to be initiated by a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding. Simple faith in Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation. The church of Sardis tells them to remember what you have received and heard, to keep it and to repent. We're not told of any outside influence but they are told not to let go of what they had received. The only reason to make this commandment is if they were letting go of the apostolic doctrine that they had been handed down. They were to keep it, not just know that doctrine, but to apply it. And they were to repent, meaning they were to change their minds back to what they had first heard. In Philadelphia, Jesus assures them. He gives them confidence, telling them, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. This door was opened to them by Peter, who held the keys to the kingdom, who opened the doors of salvation to the Gentiles, who made up the church of Philadelphia. Why did Jesus need to remind them that salvation was standing open to them and could not be shut. Because once again, the synagogue of Satan had entered into their midst and there were Jews who claimed to be Jews, but were not Jews because they were not the Israel of God. They did not believe in the Messiah who came. They were liars. They would teach to the church of Philadelphia that they did not have salvation in the Messiah, Jesus Christ but that they would need to come under the law of Moses in order to be saved. In Laodicea, 
Once again, we don't see outside influence, but internal apathy. Jesus' call to them is to return to fellowship with him. They had broken fellowship. They were outside of the fellowship with Jesus. And as John will tell us, that fellowship comes from being in fellowship with the apostles. That fellowship with the apostles comes through hearing their words and heeding their words. Second John 7-8 through 8 says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. The issue was the incarnation. The primary heresy was Jesus Christ did not come in human flesh with human blood to die on the cross for the sins of sinful humanity. That brings us to the issue at hand, specifically for John. There was another contemporary of John. This man also knew Polycarp and Papias. This was the man Serentus. He was a heretic in the city of Ephesus, and John refused to have fellowship with him. In fact, we're even told of an instance in which John went into the same public bathhouse and saw Serentus there, and he ran out screaming, the building is going to collapse because the heretic Serentus is in there. He would not have fellowship with this man because this man was an enemy of the Lord. Serentus taught that a divine spirit called Christ descended on the sinful man Jesus at the baptism and that he departed in Gethsemane before Jesus was crucified. That it was a sinful man that the Romans hung on the cross. That it was the blood of a sinner that was shed. And that it had no saving power. This heresy did not take long to develop. And it turned into a system of heresy called docetism. This taught that Jesus did not have flesh. He only appeared to have flesh. Where he walked, he would leave no footprint. He was a spirit that looked like a human. The reason for this was a dualism of good and evil, not a deism which saw God as the creator and head of the universe and evil being a corruption of the good things that he created. Docetism sees good and evil as eternally opposed, eternally coexistent. All things material are evil. All things spirit are good. Neither of those two statements are true. John is going to warn us of spirits that we need to be aware of. John is going to warn us of the temptations of the flesh. But he is also going to tell us of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God, the empowering of the believer. And he will also tell us of our responsibility to live appropriately in our flesh. This led into the doctrine of Gnosticism, 
we see proto-Gnosticism developing later in the days of John. There were two different schools of Gnostics in those early days, the Stoics, who taught that you needed to discipline the body. The mystics and the monks took this, and they would brutalize their flesh in order to strengthen their spirit. This is a heresy. The Epicureans taught that there was no connection between the body and the spirit, that the spirit was pure in and of itself and could not be corrupted by the flesh. And so they taught that you could treat your flesh any way. They sought pleasure. John teaches against these two heresies. Essentially, this is all syncretism. Synchronizing foreign philosophies with the one true gospel. And it happens in every culture where the gospel touches. In every culture, the goal is to bring the faith down to the words of the apostles. What did they teach? What did they preach? What did they tell us about the man Jesus Christ? There are three reasons why the incarnation is important. Now, there are far more than three, but there are only three that we're going to look at this morning because we've already built the foundation to understand these three. We need a kinsman redeemer. Man sinned. Man comes under condemnation from God because God is perfectly holy. If we are to have life, if we are to have fellowship restored, it's the blood of a man that needs to be shed, but it cannot be the blood of a sinful man. It needs to be innocent blood to pay for the guilty. The guilty cannot pay for the guilty. If Jesus did not come in the flesh, if Jesus was not sinless, Jesus' blood is of no worth. It does not save. The incarnation is incredibly important because our salvation is founded upon it. For the present, Jesus came in the flesh. He humiliated himself, not counting himself equal to God. And in his flesh, he did not capture his own power, but was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him and empowered him for the works that he did. Jesus operated in his human flesh through the works of the Holy Spirit. This gives us hope that we in our flesh, having been remade in our spirit, reborn through the Spirit of Christ, that our flesh can have any hope of overcoming evil. That by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us, we have any hope in our flesh of growing in Christ's likeness. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, we don't have that analogy. We don't have that represented historically. We have no guarantee if Jesus did not come in the flesh. And for the future, God's plan for creation was to place a man on the throne of creation. His greatest glory would come through seeing this achieved. And that man is Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not in the flesh, he is not a man. And he cannot fulfill God's creation purpose. Jesus Christ needed to come in the flesh 
This was important at the crucifixion. It is important for us today, and it will be important when he sits on the throne of this world. Finally, the importance of doctrine. Have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't matter, it's not a salvation issue? There is only one salvation issue, and that is faith. The Bible is not written to teach us how to get saved. Very, very little of Scripture teaches us how to get saved because the process is incredibly simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't take 66 books to teach that. It teaches a few very clear statements. Scripture is written to believers. The Gospel of John is an exception. Daniel 4, off the top of my head, is another exception. By and large, the audience of every single book, including these epistles of John, were written to believers whose salvation was already firmly secure in the eternity. They could not lose their salvation. They did not have to be taught how to get saved or how to stay saved. They had to be taught how to live in, life of their, in light of their salvation. Because you have been saved, how then should you live? Almost every word of scripture is about this topic. So when someone says it's not a salvation issue, they're saying scripture is unimportant. They probably do not know that that is what they are saying. Perhaps they have been deceived into thinking that they need to work to keep their salvation, that they somehow can contribute to the perfect work of Christ on the cross. What they are saying is the doctrine of the apostles does not matter. I do not need to live a life that glorifies the Lord. John, when he opens up his first epistle, makes that point number one. If you do not stand on this doctrine, you do not have fellowship with us. Fellowship is the prerequisite. But once again, this is not a polemical letter. This is a pastoral letter. He writes with love but he writes with a firm hand. Many of his themes that are present in the gospel appear again here. The difference between light and darkness. The difference between life and death. The difference between the truth and lies. He does not mince words, and neither should we. His audience were believers. This was not intended for unbelievers. Unbelievers have not even had the first step that brings them into fellowship. They cannot maintain fellowship because they do not have fellowship. They need to have fellowship through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before they can even begin to hope to live a life worthy of the Lord. Because until they have salvation through faith alone, they do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower them into those good works. They are filthy rags, as Isaiah tells us. The goal of this book is not evangelistic. This is a family letter. This is written to the family of Jesus Christ. The goal of this letter is discipleship, to train the believers. 
And that is why we are coming back to 1 John now that we have laid the foundation. We don't want to waste any time in growing as disciples of the Lord. This brings us to our spiritual life. How do we live in light of the apostles' words? The prerequisite, the necessity, the starting point is salvation by faith alone. If you do not have that, don't go any further. This book is not for you. Start by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to John's first book, the Gospel of John, which was written for the unbeliever to bring him to faith. John knew where the starting point was. He wrote the Gospel before he ever wrote any of his letters. That was the necessary starting point. A believer who's out of fellowship, who is not being empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow, has no use for doctrine. If you are not in fellowship with the apostles, not in fellowship with the Lord, get back in fellowship. You have believed already in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have accepted a false philosophy that brings that faith to nothing, confess that sin. Return to fellowship. Just as Jesus spoke to the church of Thyatira, repent, change your mind, get rid of that false philosophy. Come back into fellowship so that the Holy Spirit can empower you in your spiritual life. Next, we need to grow in our knowledge of what the scriptures have to say. Doctrine is important. There should not be a church that is not a doctrinal church. It is just a social club if it does not stand on doctrine. But the spiritual life does not end at knowing doctrine. Gnosticism ends at knowing secret knowledge. The spiritual life begins, finally, at the point where we know what is expected of us and what empowers us to good works so that we can have any hope of living a spiritual life. At that point, we apply the doctrine. This grows the spiritual life so that we are in fellowship. This brings true happiness. This fulfills the purpose of our lives, why we were created. And this brings complete joy. The spiritual life should not be overlooked by any Christian because we are training for reigning. We will be present with the Lord in the kingdom. We have thrones waiting for us. We have rewards and crowns waiting for us. Any Christian who is convinced of the idea that only salvation issues matter will not be rewarded heavily in the kingdom. Those who say, I'm in, I might get in smelling like smoke by the skin of my teeth. I will have no crowns to throw before the Lord's feet. I will have nothing by which to glorify him in my life. But at least he did for me what he was supposed to do. Salvation issues are the beginning. 
Doctrinal issues are everything else. The entire Christian life is not a salvation issue, but a discipleship issue. It is incredibly important. Finally, all of this begins and ends with the apostles. What they taught is what we have. We do not get more. We do not have less. God gave us what we needed and everything we need to live the spiritual life. And it begins with believing the words that have been handed down to us. That is where we start. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The apostles wanted to have fellowship with the other believers, but they needed to believe the doctrine that the apostles gave to them. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It is mutually exclusive. If you do not have fellowship with the apostles, you do not have fellowship with Christ and with God because those are in fellowship. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That is the goal of 1 John, to bring us to joy through the words of God handed down through the apostles, given to us that we might believe them and live by them. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this amazing gift that you have given to us in these last letters written to the church. We pray that as we study them in the next few months, we might grow and we might, we might grow in knowledge of you and we might grow in fellowship with one another and with you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.